Chapter Four of Father and Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alana Jordan. Father and Son by Edmund Goss. Chapter Four. Certainly the preceding year, the seventh of my life, had been waited for us with comprehensive disaster. I have not yet mentioned that, at the beginning of my mother's fatal illness, misfortune came upon her brothers. I have never known the particulars of their ruin, but I believe, in consequence of A's unsuccessful speculations, and the fact that E had allowed the use of his name as a surety, both my uncles were obliged to fly from their creditors and take refuge in Paris. This happened just when our need was the sorest, and this, together with the poignancy of knowing that their sister's devoted labors for them had been all in vain, added to their unhappiness. It was doubtless also the reason why, having left England, they wrote to us no more, carefully concealing from us even their address, so that when my mother died, my father was unable to communicate with them. I fear that they fell into dire distress. Before very long we learned that A had died, but it was fifteen years or more before we heard anything of E, whose life had at length been preserved by the kindness of an old servant, but whose mind was now so clouded that he could recollect little or nothing of the past, and soon he also died. Amiable, gentle, without any species of practical ability, they were quite unfitted to struggle with the world, which had touched them only to wreck them. The flight of my uncles at this particular juncture left me without a relative on my mother's side at the time of her death. This isolation threw my father into a sad perplexity. His only obvious source of income, but it happened to be a remarkably hopeful one, was an engagement to deliver a long series of lectures on marine natural history throughout the north and center of England. These lectures were an entire novelty. Nothing like them had been offered to the provincial public before, and the fact that the newly invented marine aquarium was the fashionable toy of the moment added to their attraction. My father was bowed down by sorrow and care, but he was not broken. His intellectual forces were at their height, and so was his popularity as an author. The lectures were to begin in March. My mother was buried on 13 February. It seemed at first in the inertia of bereavement, to be all beyond his powers to make the supreme effort. But the wholesome prick of need urged him on. It was a question of paying for food and clothes, of keeping a roof above our heads. The captain of a vessel in a storm must navigate his ship, although his wife lies dead in the cabin. That was my father's position in the spring of 1857. He had to stimulate, instruct, amuse large audiences of strangers, and seem gay, although affliction and loneliness had settled in his heart. He had to do this, or starve. But the difficulty still remained. During these months, what was to become of me? My father could not take me with him from hotel to hotel, and from lecture hall to lecture hall, nor could he leave me, as people leave the domestic cat, in an empty house for the neighbors to feed at intervals. The dilemma threatened to be insurmountable, when suddenly there descended upon us a kind but little-known paternal cousin, 
from the west of England, who had heard of our calamities. This lady had a large family of her own at Bristol. She offered to find room in it for me, so long as ever my father should be away in the north. And when my father, bewildered by so much goodness, hesitated, she came up to London and carried me forcibly away in a whirlwind of good nature. Her benevolence was quite spontaneous, and I am not sure that she had not attended to it already by helping to nurse our beloved sufferer through part of her illness. Of that I am not positive, but I recollect very clearly her snatching me from our cold and desolate hearthstone and carrying me off to her cheerful house at Clifton. Here, for the first time, when half through my eighth year, I was thrown into the society of young people. My cousins were none of them, I believe, any longer children, but they were youths and maidens, busily engaged in various personal interests, all collected in a hive of wholesome family energy. Everybody was very kind to me, and I sank back, after the strain of so many months, into mere childhood again. This long visit to my cousins at Clifton must have been very delightful. I am dimly aware that it was, yet I remember but few of its incidents. My memory, so clear and vivid about earlier solitary times, now in all its society becomes blurred and vague. I recollect certain pleasures being taken, for instance, to a menagerie, and having a practical joke, in the worst taste, played upon me by the pelican. One of my cousins, who was a medical student, showed me a pistol, and helped me to fire it. He smoked a pipe, and I was oddly conscious that both the firearm and the tobacco were definitely hostile to my dedication. My girl cousins took turns in putting me to bed, and on cold nights, or when they were in a hurry, allowed me to say my prayer under the bedclothes instead of kneeling at a chair. The result of this was further spiritual laxity, because I could not help going to sleep before the prayer was ended. The visit to Clifton was, in fact, a blessed interval in my strenuous childhood. It probably prevented my nerves from breaking down under the pressure of the previous months. The Clifton family was God-fearing in a quiet, sensible way. But there was a total absence of all the intensity and compulsion of our religious life at Islington. I was not encouraged, I even remember that I was greatly snubbed, when I rattled forth, parrot fashion, the conventional phraseology of the saints. For a short, enchanting period of respite, I lived the life of an ordinary little boy, relapsing to a degree which would have filled my father with despair, into childish thoughts and childish language. The result was that of this little happy breathing space I have nothing to report. Vague, half-blind remembrances of walks with my tall cousins waving like trees above me, pleasant noisy evenings in a great room on the ground floor, faint silver points of excursions into the country, all this is the very pale and shadowy testimony to a brief interval of healthy, happy child life, when my hard-driven soul was allowed to have, for a little while, no history. The life of a child is so brief, its impressions are so illusory and fugitive, that it is as difficult to record its history as it would be to design a morning cloud sailing before the wind. It is short, as we count shortness, in after years, when the drag of lead pulls down to earth the foot that used to flutter with a winged impetuosity, and to float with the pulse of Hermes. 
But in memory my childhood was long, long with interminable hours, hours with the pale cheek pressed against the window-pane, hours of mechanical and repeated lonely games, which had lost their savor, and were kept going by sheer inertness, not unhappy, not fretful, but long, long, long. It seems to me, as I look back to life in the motherless Islington house, as I resumed it in that slow eighth year of my life, the time had ceased to move. There was a whole age between one tick of the eight-day clock in the hall and the next tick. When the milkman went his rounds in our gray street, with his eldritch scream over the top of each set of area railings, it seemed as though he would never disappear again. There was no past and no future for me, and the present felt as though it were sealed up in a laden jar. Even my dreams were interminable, and hung stationary from the nightly sky. At this time the street was my theater, and I spent long periods, as I have said, leaning against the window. I feel now that coldness of the pain, and the feverish heat that was produced by contrast in the orbit round the eye. Now and then amusing things happened. The onion man was a joy long waited for. This worthy was a tall and bony journey Protestant with a raucous voice, who strode up our street several times a week, carrying a yoke across his shoulders, from the ends of which hung ropes of onions. He used to shout, at abrupt intervals, in a tone which might wake the dead, Here's your rope to hang the Pope, and a penn'orth of cheese to choke him. The cheese appeared to be legendary. He sold only onions. My father did not eat onions, but he encouraged this terrible fellow with his wild eyes and long strips of hair because of his godly attitudes towards the papacy, and I used to watch him dart out of the front door, present his penny, and retire, graciously waving back the proffered onion. On the other hand, my father did not approve of a fat sailor who was a constant passer-by. This man, who was probably crazed, used to wall very slowly up the center of our street, vociferating with the voice of a bull, Watch and pray, hey, night and day, hey. This melancholy admonition was the entire business of his life. He did nothing at all but walk up and down the streets of Islington, exhorting the inhabitants to watch and pray. I do not recollect that the sailor man stopped to collect pennies, and my impression is that he was, after his fashion, a volunteer evangelist. The tragedy of Mr. Punch was another, and a still, greater delight. I was never allowed to go out into the street to mingle with the little crowd which gathered under the stage, and as I was extremely near-sighted, the impression I received was vague. But when, by happy chance, the show stopped opposite our door, I saw enough of that ancient drama to be thrilled with terror and delight. I was much affected by the internal troubles of the Punch family. I thought that with a little more tact on the part of Mrs. Punch, and some restraint held over a temper, naturally violent by Mr. Punch, a great deal of this sad misunderstanding might have been prevented. The momentous close 
when a figure of shapeless horror appears on the stage and quells the hitherto undaunted Mr. Punch, was to me the bouquet of the entire performance. When Mr. Punch, losing his nerve, points to the shape and says in an awestruck, squeaking whisper, "'Who's that? Is it the butcher?' And the stern answer comes, "'No, Mr. Punch,' and then, "'Is it the baker?' "'No, Mr. Punch. Who is it then?' This in a squeak, trembling with emotion and terror. And then the full, loud reply, booming like a judgment bell, "'It is the devil.' come to take you down to hell. And the form of Punch, with kicking legs, sunken in epilepsy on the floor, all this was solemn and exquisite to me beyond words. I was not amused. I was deeply moved and exhilarated, purged, as the old phrase hath it, with pity and terror. Another joy, in a lighter key, was watching a fantastic old man who came slowly up the street hung about with drums and flutes and kites and colored balls, and bearing over his shoulders a great sack. Children and servant girls used to bolt up out of areas and chaffer with this gaudy person, who would presently trudge on, always repeating the same set of words, Here's your toys, for girls and boys, for bits of brass and broken glass, these four lines being spoken in a breathless hurry, a penny or a vile bottle, this being drawled out in an endless wail. I was not permitted to go forth and trade with this old person, but sometimes our servant-mate did, thereby making me feel that if I did not hold the rose of merchandise, I was very near it. My experiences with my cousins at Clifton had given me the habit of looking out into the world, even though it was only into the pale world of our quiet street. My father and I were now great friends. I do not doubt that he felt his responsibility to fill, as far as might be, the gap which the death of my mother had made in my existence. I spent a large portion of my time in his study while he was writing or drawing, and though very little conversation passed between us, I think that each enjoyed the companionship of the other. There were two, and sometimes three, aquaria in the room tanks of sea-water, with glass slides, inside which all sorts of creatures crawled and swam. These were sources of endless pleasure to me, and at this time began to be laid upon me the occasional task of watching and afterwards reporting the habits of animals. At other times I dragged a folio volume of the Penny Cyclopedia up to the study with me, and sat there reading successive articles on subjects as parrots, parthians, passion flowers, passover, and pastry, without any invidious preferences, all information being equally welcome and equally fugitive. That something of all this loose stream of knowledge clung to odd cells in the back of my brain seems to be shown by the fact that to this day I occasionally find myself aware of some stray useless fact about peonies, or pemmican, or pepper, which I can only trace back to the penny cyclopedia of my infancy. It will be asked what the attitude of my father's mind was to me, and of mine to his, as regards religion at this time, when we were thrown together alone so much. It is difficult to reply with exactitude, but so far as the former is concerned, 
I think that the extreme violence of the spiritual emotions to which my father had been subjected had now been followed by a certain reaction. He had not changed his views in any respect, and he was prepared to work out the results of them with greater zeal than ever. But just at present, his religious nature, like his physical nature, was tired out with anxiety and sorrow. He accepted the supposition that I was entirely with him in all respects so far, that is to say, as a being so rudimentary and feeble as a little child could be. My mother, in her last hours, had dwelt on our unity in God. We were drawn together, she said, elect from the world, in a triplicity of faith and joy. She had constantly repeated the words, We shall be one family, one song. One song, one family, my father, I think, accepted this as a prophecy. He felt no doubt of our triple unity. My mother had now merely passed before us through a door into a world of light, where we should presently join her, where all things would be radiant and blissful, but where we three would, in some unknown way, be particularly drawn together in a tie of inexpressible beatitude. He fretted at the delay he would have taken me by the hand, and have joined her in the realms of holiness and light at once, without this dreary dalliance with earthly cares. He held this confidence and vision steadily before him, but nothing availed against the melancholy of his natural state. He was conscious of his dull and solitary condition, and he saw, too, that it enveloped me. I think his heart was, at this time, drawn out towards me in an immense tenderness. Sometimes, when the early twilight descended upon us in the study, he could no longer peer with advantage into the depths of his microscope. He would beckon me to him silently, and fold me closely in his arms. I used to turn my face up to his, patiently and wonderingly, while the large, unwilling tears gathered in the corners of his eyelids. My training had given me a preternatural faculty of stillness, and we would stay so, without a word or a movement, until the darkness filled the room, and then, with my little hand in his, we would walk sedately downstairs to the parlor, where we would find that the lamp was lighted, and that our melancholy vigil was ended. I do not think that at any part of our lives my father and I were drawn so close to one another as we were in that summer of 1857, yet we seldom spoke of what lay so warm and fragrant between us, the flower-like thought of our departed. The visit to my cousins had made one considerable change in me. Under the old solitary discipline, my intelligence had grown at the expense of my sentiment. I was innocent, but inhuman. The long suffering and the death of my mother had awakened my heart, had taught me what pain was, but had left me savage and morose. I had still no idea of the relations of human beings to one another. I had learned no word of that philosophy which comes to children of the poor in the struggle of the street, and to the children of the well-to-do in the clash of the nursery. In other words, I had no humanity. I had been carefully shielded from the chance of catching it, as though it were the most dangerous of microbes. But now that I had enjoyed a little of the common experience of childhood, a great change had come upon me. Before I went to Clifton, my mental life was all interior. 
a wreck of baseless dream upon dream. But now I was eager to look out of the window, to go out in the streets. I was taken with a curiosity about human life. Even from my vantage of the window-pane, I watched boys and girls go by with an interest which began to be almost wistful. Still I continued to have no young companions, but on summer evenings I used to drag my father out, taking the initiative myself, stamping in playful impatience at his irresolution, fetching his hat and stick, and waiting. We used to sally forth at last together, hand in hand, descending the Caledonian road, with all its shops as far as Mother Shipton, or else winding among the semi-gentle squares and terraces westward by Copenhagen Street, or, best of all, mounting to the Regent's Canal, where we paused to lean over the bridge and watch flotillas of ducks steer under us, or little white dogs dash, impotently furious, from stem to stern of the great lazy barges painted in a crude vehemence of vermilion and azure. These were happy hours when the specter of religion ceased to overshadow us for a little while, when my father forgot the apocalypse and dropped his austere phraseology, and when our bass and treble voices used to ring out together over some foolish little jest or some mirthful recollection of his past experiences. Little soft oases these, in the hard desert of our sandy spiritual life at home. There was an unbending, too, when we used to sing together, in my case very tunelessly. I had inherited a plentiful lack of musical genius from my mother, who had neither ear nor voice, and who had said in the course of her last illness, I shall sing his praise at length in strains I never could master here below. My father, on the other hand, had some knowledge of the principles of vocal music, although not, I am afraid, much taste. He had, at least, great fondness for singing hymns, in the manner then popular with the evangelicals, very loudly, and so slowly that I used to count how many words I could read silently, between the one syllable of the singing and the other. My lack of skill did not prevent me from being zealous at these vocal exercises, and my father and I used to sing lustily together, the Wellesleys, Charlotte Elliot, just as I am, without one plea, and James Montgomery, forever with the Lord, represented his predilection in hymnology. I acquiesced, although that would not have been my independent choice. These represented the devotional verse which made its direct appeal to the evangelical mind, and served, in those Puseyite days, to counteract the high church poetry founded on the Christian year. Of that famous volume, I never met with a copy until I was grown up, and equally unknown in our circle were the hymns of Newman, Faber, and Neal. It was my father's plan from the first to keep me entirely ignorant of the poetry of the high church, which deeply offended his Calvinism. He thought that religious truth could be sucked in like mother's milk from hymns which were godly and sound, and yet correctly versified. I was therefore carefully trained in this direction from an early date. But my spirit had rebelled against some of these hymns, especially against those written, a mighty multitude, by Horatius Bonar, naughtily refusing to read Bonar's I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say, 
to my mother in our Pimlico lodgings. A secret hostility to this particular form of effusion was already, at the age of seven, beginning to define itself in my brain, side by side with an unctus infantile conformity. I find a difficulty in recalling the precise nature of the religious instruction which my father gave me at this time. It was incessant, and it was founded on the close inspection of the Bible, particularly of the epistles of the New Testament. This summer, as my eighth year advanced, we read the epistle to the Hebrews, with very great deliberation, stopping every moment that my father might expound it, verse by verse. The extraordinary beauty of the language, for instance, the matchless cadences and images of the first chapter, made a certain impression upon my imagination, and were, I think, my earliest initiation into the magic of literature. I was incapable of defining what I felt, but I certainly had a grip in the throat, which was, in its essence, a purely aesthetic emotion, when my father read in his pure, large, ringing voice, such passages as, The heavens are the works of thy hands, they shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But the dialectic parts of the epistle puzzled and confused me, such metaphysical ideas as laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and crucifying the Son of God afresh were not successfully brought down to the level of my understanding. My father's religious teaching to me was almost exclusively doctrinal. He did not observe the value of negative education, that is to say, of leaving nature alone to fill up the gaps which it is her design to deal with at a later and riper date. He did not even satisfy himself with those moral injunctions which should form the basis of infantile discipline. He was in a tremendous hurry to push on my spiritual growth, and he fed me with theological meat which it was impossible for me to digest. Some glimmer of a suspicion that he was sailing on the wrong tack must, I should suppose, have broken in upon him when we had reached the eighth and ninth chapters of Hebrews, where, addressing readers who had been brought up under the Jewish dispensation, and had the formalities of the law of Moses in their very blood, the apostle battles with their dangerous conservatism. It is a very noble piece of spiritual casuistry, but it is signally unfitted for the comprehension of a child. Suddenly, by my flushing up with anger and saying, Oh, how I do hate that law, my father perceived, and paused in amazement to perceive, that I took the law to be a person of malignant temper, from whose cruel bondage, and from whose intolerable tyranny and unfairness, some excellent person was crying out to be delivered. I wished to hit the law with my fist, for being so mean and unreasonable. Upon this, of course, it was necessary to reopen the whole line of exposition. My father, without realizing it, had been talking on his own level, not on mine, and now he condescended to me. 
but without very great success. The melodious language, the divine forensic audacities, the magnificent ebb and flow of argument which make the epistle to the Hebrews such a miracle were far and away beyond my reach, and they only bewildered me. Some evangelical children of my generation, I understand, were brought up on a work called Line Upon Line, Here a Little and There a Little. My father's ambition would not submit to anything suggested by such a title as that, and he committed, from his own point of view, a fatal mistake when he sought to build spires and battlements without having been at the pains to settle a foundation beneath them. We were not always reading the epistle to the Hebrews, however. Not always was my flesh being made to creep by having it insisted upon that almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without blood there is no remission of sin. In our lighter moods we turn to the book of Revelation, and chase the phantom of popery through fuliginous pages. My father, I think, missed my mother's company almost more acutely in his researches into prophecy than in anything else. This had been their unceasing recreation, and no third person could possibly follow the curious path which they had hewn for themselves through this jungle of symbols. But, more and more, my father persuaded himself that I, too, was initiated, and by degrees I was made to share in all his speculations and interpretations. Hand in hand we investigated the number of the beast, which number is six hundred, threescore, and six. Hand in hand we inspected the nations to see whether they had the mark of Babylon in their foreheads. Hand in hand we watched the spirits of devils gathering the kings of the earth into the place which is called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Our unity in these excursions was so delightful that my father was lulled in any suspicion he might have formed that I did not quite understand what it was all about, nor could he have desired a pupil more docile or more ardent than I was in my flaming denunciations of the papacy. If there was one institution more than another which, at this early stage of my history, I loathed and feared, it was what we invariably spoke of as the so-called Church of Rome. In later years I have met with stout Protestants, gallant down with the Pope men from County Antrim, and ladies who see the hand of the Jesuits in every public and private misfortune. It is the habit of a loose and indifferent age to consider this dwindling body of enthusiasts with suspicion, and to regard their attitudes towards Rome as a liberal. But my own feeling is that they are all too mild, that their denunciations err on the side of the anodyne. I have no longer the slightest wish myself to denounce the Roman communion, but if it is to be done, I have an idea that the latter-day Protestants do not know how to do it. In Lord Chesterfield's phrase, these anti-pope men don't understand their own silly business. They make concessions and allowances. They put on gloves to touch the accursed thing. Not thus did we approach the scarlet woman in the fifties. 
we palliated nothing, we believed in no good attentions. We used, I myself used in my tender innocency, language of the seventeenth century, such as is no longer introduced into any species of controversy. As a little boy, when I thought with intense vagueness of the Pope, I used to shut my eyes tight and clench my fists. We welcomed any social disorder in any part of Italy as likely to be annoying to the papacy. If there was a custom-house officer stabbed in a fracas at Sassari, we gave loud thanks that liberty and light were breaking in upon Sardinia. If there was an unsuccessful attempt to murder the Grand Duke, we lifted up our voices to celebrate the faith and sufferings of the dear persecuted Tuscans, and the record of some apocryphal monstrosity in Naples would only reveal to us a glorious opening for gospel energy. My father celebrated the announcement in the newspapers of a considerable emigration from the papal dominions by rejoicing at this outcrowding of many throughout the harlot's domain for her sins and her plagues. No, the Protestant League may consider itself to be an earnest and active body, but I can never look upon its efforts as anything but lukewarm standing as I do with the light of others' days around me. As a child, whatever I might question, I never doubted the turpitude of Rome. I do not think I had formed any idea whatever of the character or pretensions or practices of the Catholic Church, or indeed of what it consisted, or its nature. But I regarded it with a vague terror as a wild beast, the only good point about it being that it was very old and was soon to die. When I turned to Jukes or Newton for further detail, I could not understand what they said. Perhaps, on the whole, there was no disadvantage in that. It is possible that someone may have observed to my father that the conditions of our life were unfavorable to our health, although I hardly think that he would have encouraged any such advice. As I look back upon this faraway time, I am surprised at the absence in it of any figures but our own. He and I together, now in that study among the sea anemones and starfishes, now on the canal bridge, looking down at the ducks, now at our hard little meal served up as those of a dreamy widower are likely to be when one made of all work provides them. Now, under the lamp, at the maps we both love so much, this is what I see. No third presence is ever with us. Whether it occurred to him that such a solitude adieu was excellent, in the long run, for neither of us, or whether any chance visitor or one of the saints who used to see me at the room every Sunday morning, suggested that a female influence might put a little rose color into my pasty cheeks, I know not. All I am aware of is that one day, towards the close of the summer, as I was gazing into the street, I saw a four-wheeled cab stop outside our door and deposit with several packages a strange lady, who was shown up into my father's study and was presently brought down and introduced to me. Miss Marks, as I shall take the liberty of calling this person, was so long a part of my life that I must pause to describe her. She was tall, rather gaunt, with high cheekbones. Her teeth were prominent and very white. 
Her eyes were china blue, and were always absolutely fixed, wide open, on the person she spoke to. Her nose was very inclined to be red at the tip. She had a kind, hearty, sharp mode of talking, but did not exercise it much, being on the whole taciturn. She was bustling and nervous, not particularly refined, not quite, I imagine, what is called a lady. I supposed her, if I thought of the matter at all, to be very old, but perhaps she may have been, when we knew her first, some forty-five summers. Miss Marks was an orphan, depending upon her work for her living. She would not, in these days of examinations, have come up to the necessary educational standards, but she had enjoyed experience in teaching, and was prepared to be a conscientious and careful governess up to her lights. I was now informed by my father that it was in this capacity that she would in future take her place in our household. I was not informed, what I gradually learned by observation, that she would also act in it as housekeeper. Miss Marks was a somewhat grotesque personage, and might easily be painted as a kind of eccentric Dickens character, a mixture of a Mrs. Pipchin and Miss Sally Brass. I will confess that when, in many years to come, I read Dombey and Son, certain features of Mrs. Pipchin did irresistibly remind me of my excellent past governess. I can imagine Miss Marks saying, but with a facetious intent, that children who sniffed would not go to heaven. But I was instantly ashamed of the parallel, because my gaunt old friend was a thoroughly good and honest woman, not intelligent and not graceful, but desirous in every way to do her duty. Her duty to me she certainly did, and I am afraid I hardly rewarded her with the devotion she deserved. From the first I was indifferent to her wishes, and as much as was convenient, I ignored her existence. She held no power over my attention, and if I accepted her guidance along the path of instruction, it was because, odd as it may sound, I really loved knowledge. I accepted her company without objection, and though there were occasional outbreaks of tantrums on both sides, we both got on very well together for several years. I did not, however, at any time surrender my inward will to the wishes of Miss Marks. In the circle of our life the religious element took so preponderatingly a place that it is impossible to avoid mentioning what might otherwise seem unimportant, the theological views of Miss Marks. How my father discovered her, or from what field of educational enterprise he plucked her in her prime, I never knew. But she used to mention that my father's ministrations had opened her eyes from which scales had fallen. She had accepted, on their presentation to her, the entire gamut of his principles. Miss Marks was accustomed, while putting me to bed, to dwell darkly on the incidents of her past, which had, I fear, been an afflicted one. I believe I do her rather limited intelligence no injury when I say that it was prepared to swallow at one mouthful whatever my father presented to it. So delighted was its way, worn possessor, 
to find herself in a comfortable, or at least, in an independent position. She soon bowed, if there was indeed any resistance from the first, very contentedly, in the house of Rimen, learning to repeat, with marked fluency, the customary formulas and shibboleths. On my own religious development she had no great influence. Any such guttering theological rushlight as Miss Marks might dutifully exhibit faded for me in the blaze of my father's glaring beacon-lamp of faith. Hardly was Miss Marks settled in the family than my father left us on an expedition about which my curiosity was exercised, but not until later satisfied. He had gone, as we afterwards found, to South Devon, to a point on the coast which he had known of old. Here he had hired a horse, and had ridden about until he saw a spot he liked, where a villa was being built on speculation. Nothing equals the courage of these recluse men. My father got off his horse, and tied it to the gate, and then he went in and bought the house on a ninety-nine years' lease. I need hardly say that he had made the matter a subject of the most earnest prayer, and had entreated the Lord for guidance. When he felt attracted to this particular villa, he did not doubt that he was directed to it in answer to his supplication, and he wasted no time in further balancing or inquiring. On my eighth birthday, with bag and baggage complete, we all made the toilful journey down into Devonshire, and I was a town child no longer. End of chapter 4 Recording by Alana Jordan